will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I would invite you to join me in Romans chapter 3. We continue our, working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, seeing the glory in the gospel. Romans 3 verses 1 through 20 will be our passage today. And I would encourage you to turn in your Bible or the Pew Bible that's there in front of you to follow along as we work our way through this text. Courtroom drama is, uh, seems to be always popular entertainment. Uh, maybe you're a fan of the TV show Law and Order uh, or its spinoff. I mean, th- these shows have been uh, running on NBC since 1990. Uh, before that, back in the 80s, I remember as a kid watching reruns of Perry Mason that first uh, aired in the 60s. Uh, we have a fascination for crime and punishment and specifically the, that process of judgment. Guilty? or not guilty, crushing condemnation, or the sweet relief of freedom. Uh, A familiar piece of these courtroom dramas, of course, is the witness on the stand, one attorney questioning or cross-examining the witness, and the other lawyer interrupting, objection! Now, that's hearsay, or you're leading the witness, or that's irrelevant, and and you know, if you've watched these shows, you know that, that the judge will respond in one of two ways, sustained meaning that objection is valid, uh, other guy, you have to stop that line of questioning, um, or overruled. Objection overruled. Your objection is invalid. Uh, carry on with the questions. Now, over the first three chapters of, of this letter to Romans, Paul is making the case that all people face God's judgment because of their sin. And as we saw at the end of chapter 2 last week, the, the Jews might have thought that they were the exception. Uh, no, Paul says, God is impartial. He judges all people by their works. And in chapter 3, we're going to hear some cry, objection. I mean, not literally, of course. Paul is writing a letter, so he's imagining what uh, some might object to, possible objections to what he is saying. But ultimately, though, these objections are not to Paul these are objections to God. How dare you judge me? Now, instead of opening with a summary sentence like I usually do, this week I'm just setting out a question that Paul is going to answer in this passage, Romans 3, 1 to 20. Here it is. When it comes to final judgment, is God guilty or are we? That's what this passage is going to be about. For our reading, I'm going to back up a paragraph and start with uh, the end of chapter 2, verse 25, and then go on through our text so that you can uh, follow the the flow of what Paul is saying. So, back to chapter 2, 25, Paul says, "'For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision.'" this mark of Jewish identity. So if a man who is uncircumcised, Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, Gentile, but keeps the law, will condemn you, Jew, who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Well, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I promise the light of the gospel is going to break through in the next section. I mean, this is that we're going to uh, get there next week. But it, it, it just may be that that all this pounding is needed to break us. Paul has been making the case that all people, both Jews and Gen, uh, and Gentiles, uh, will face the judgment of God for their sin. Here's the first objection: If all are judged by works then there's no benefit to being God's people, would uh, say the Jew. At the end of chapter 2, where we read, Paul brought up the topic of circumcision, which was a sign of the covenant that God made with the Jewish people. For Jews, it was a mark of distinction. I mean, we're God's chosen people. Those Gentiles, they're pagans, uh, heathen. But but Paul challenges the the, uh, conclusion that they had jumped to, uh, that Jewish identity would make a difference at the final judgment. Uh, 2.25, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey God's law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes virtually the same as uncircumcision. In other words, you call yourself a Jew, but you're just like the rest of the world. Paul then anticipates the possible objection in chapter 3, verse 1. Well, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? It sounds like you're saying that circumcision, that being a Jew is worthless. Surely, uh, being a part of God's people is worth something. Now, that's like complaining that your membership at at Costco doesn't get you through the checkout line. Well, membership is good for something, but somebody still has to pay. Paul says your membership in God's covenant people is very valuable. Much in every way, he says to to their question, to the objection. There's many ways that... that, uh, it's, it's advantageous to be a Jew. To begin with, and it sounds like he's going to rattle off a long list of positive things to show how being a Jew is advantageous, valuable. Then he mentions just one. Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
kind of like oracles. Like, uh, you could translate that word simply as just, well, the words of God. Uh, it's, in, it's in the plural, the, the words. But it has the sense of God uh, making a statement or a pronouncement. Uh, or maybe think of it this way. I could, I could go over to the shelf, pull off a dictionary, and say, I have here all the words of Abraham Lincoln and several more. Um, all the words that he used in alphabetical order. Isn't that handy? Um, but uh, that's different from having the words of Abraham Lincoln. Words like the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates or the Gettysburg Address or the Second Inaugural Address. Words that, that called people to action, that galvanized a nation, that changed history. That and much more is what it meant to have the oracles of God, the words of God. So in this imagined debate between Paul and his listeners, uh, verse 3 moves on to another possible objection. So we're like, well, wait a minute, that, that, that was quick. Did, did Paul, did you really answer this objection with this one thing in verse 2? Well, see how this connects to the major point in chapter 2. Remember we were said having the law is not enough. Knowing God's law is not enough. You have to keep it. You have to obey it. That's what makes the difference. Here, Paul strongly affirms having God's law is a genuinely good thing. Uh, Or think back to chapter 1. God has revealed himself to all people, all the peoples of the world, through the the things that he has made in creation, uh, that it can at least give anyone, even the illiterate, some sense of the reality of God, his, his power, his divine nature, the godness of God. Anybody can see that. Everybody knows that. But, but the Jews had more, much more than that. God spoke to the Jews. He, he, they gave him, he gave them his very words, his direct communication. Now, Mere possession of God's words is not enough to save you, but what a privilege. It depends on what you do with it, though. What have you done with God, my word? Has it changed you? Are you listening? Are you heeding? Are you obeying? Now, there may not be any uh, ethnically Jewish people here in the room today, but there is a way that this might uh, challenge you. So I hope, hope you're already uh, feeling that. Um, Paul could have said, if he was talking to... Uh, this room today, your religious identity, your church membership, your baptism, they don't have any value when you finally stand before God. And sadly, uh, many of us, we think we, we think we know this already, and so we say, well, good, that means I don't need to be baptized, I don't need to go to church, I don't need to serve, I don't need to give, and, and on and on. Like, no... No. If we were thinking like the Jews of Paul's day, we would be, we'd hear this differently. And we would say, hey, wait a minute. Those don't matter when it, we stand before God? Uh, you're saying those, there's no advantage to being a Christian? There, there's no value in baptism, that mark of Christian identity? Impossible. And, and here's the thing. There is a wonderful privilege in what you possess, Christian. It's a wonderful privilege to, to have the truth of God, to have the, the, this objective standard of right and wrong. You have his, in this word, you have not only that, his commands and his laws, but his promises and his blessings and his words of comfort and, and hope. We have all this. We've been brought through this word into the fellowship of God's family. Your sins have been forgiven. And, but the word of God is of no value if you don't do anything with it. Just, just sending your kids to Sunday school won't cut it. That, that might make them a little less naughty. But without faith, it will not save their soul. It will not save your soul. Having the truth could just leave them and you 
self-righteous and satisfied and complacent, but guilty before God and condemned for your sin. It doesn't mean you don't go to Sunday school. It doesn't mean you don't bring your kids to church. It doesn't mean you don't follow Christ in baptism. You don't, you don't get into the Word in prayer. You don't come to, to worship together with God's people. You don't, it doesn't mean you don't do those things. It, it just means that a superficial possession of those things is not enough when you stand before God. What should you trust in? Well, we'll, we'll get there, but first, another objection. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? This is objection number two. If their sin, speaking specifically, of course, of the covenant people, of the Jewish people, if their sin forfeits God's blessing, then God is not keeping his promises. Are you following this? If all people are going to be judged by God for what they have done, including the Jews, and if the Jews disobeyed the law, the terms of their covenant relationship with God, well, does that forfeit the covenant? Does God abandon his promise? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul's answer is loud and clear in the next verse. For by no means, no way, man, God will be faithful. He will keep his word. And then I wonder if you, if you would have expected uh, after that for Paul to say something like this. Well, of course God is faithful. If you're one of God's chosen people, you can sin all you want and you'll be saved anyway. I mean, you're elect. How does he answer? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let me home in on that one line, that you may be justified in your words. Now, some of you are familiar with Romans. It's like, wait a minute, I thought justification, that was something that God did to us somehow, and well, we're, we're going to get there at the end of this chapter and on into chapters 4 and 5, but, but here you're left scratching your head. Like, God is justified? It simply means that God is shown to be in the right, that he is declared to be righteous, because he is. Uh, and if he is justified in his words, it means he is indeed faithful. He is true to his word. He keeps his word even as he judges sinners. That quotation, maybe the Bible you're looking at has those uh, two lines at the end of verse 4, uh, indented, offset. Those are a quotation from Psalm 51. That psalm, uh, you may remember, written by David after he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan for David's sin in taking Uriah's wife Bathsheba. And David writes in a verse that, that you may well know, Psalm 51, verse 4, "...against you, God..." You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, and this is the end of that verse, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Like David, every time we do wrong, we have to recognize that, yes, we have, we have broken the rules, we have maybe hurt other people, but ultimately, ultimately, we have sinned against God, first and foremost, we have sinned against God. And as much as we want to uh, deny our guilt or deny God's right to judge, when he holds us accountable, that's God being true to his word. Think about it. He is, he is operating consistently with his commands. He is upholding his holy standard of right and wrong. He is preserving his honor that we have profaned. 
And what all that means is God is not only faithful when he keeps his promise to bless, he is also faithful when he keeps his word and he executes judgment on our sin. God's faithful. You want to know, Paul is effectively saying, you want to know whether the unfaithfulness of some, you see at the beginning of verse 3, well, what if some were unfaithful? Well, you want to know whether the unfaithfulness of some negatively impacts the faithfulness of God? Verse 4, even if every human being were a liar, God would be true. And that's a good thing, because that's where we're at. And this is not just a word for Jews back in Paul's day. Paul also writes to Timothy, to believers like you and me. This is 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also reign with him. We, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's just who he is. He is faithful and true. Now, if, if reading a passage like that worries you because it seems to sound like, well, you fail, you may fail, but God never does, well, that's good and not so good because you're like, well, wait a minute, that's, that's saying that uh, I'm in big trouble. The point is not, of course, of that, well, give up hope. God will give up on you when you fail. No, the point is this, give up hope in yourself And hope in God instead, he is the unfailing one. He is the trustworthy one. We are weak. He is strong. We are fickle. He is faithful. Whose hands do you want to be in? Now, if God shows himself righteous and faithful, even as he judges sin, that could lead to, well, another objection. Here's verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? This is objection number three. If judging their sin brings him glory, well, then God is wrong to inflict his wrath. I'll just go ahead and say this. Most of the time, my sermon outline is is like the takeaway points. Like, you can go back and look at the outline later. Like, oh, yeah, this is the things I need to remember. These are all the objections. These are all the things that are wrong. So, objection one, two, three, don't refer back to those later as like, oh, I'm supposed to, this is what I'm supposed to believe? No, this is the objection. This is, the, this is Paul speaking in a human way. Uh, so, where does this objection come from? Well, it's from what he just said in verse 4, quoting Psalm 51. If God is shown to be in the right when he judges our wrongs, then our sin only makes him look good, Right? It wouldn't be right for God to judge us for that. This is so silly that Paul says, this, I'm just speaking in a human way here. This is not God's truth. And then after another, by no means, no, no way. He answers their objection with three questions of his own. So these are not further objections. These are Paul throwing questions back in their face, all intended to show how ridiculous this objection is. Verse 6, for then how could God judge the world? If it would be wrong for him to judge you for your sin, how could he judge the world? Paul expects the, his audience, this Jewish audience uh, in the moment, to agree with this already. Of course God would judge the world. Uh, he, I just didn't think he would judge me. Of course he needs to, to zap those, the, the wicked people, the bad people out there. I, I, just, I just thought I was okay. 
Well, he, Paul says, well, think about it. If it's wrong for God to judge sin because his righteousness is seen in judgment, then he couldn't judge any sin in anybody. Okay, so that doesn't, that doesn't work. Uh, verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul questions back, if you think it's wrong for God to condemn you because your lie makes God's truth more, make him more glorious, well, you know what the next logical step would be, right? Huh, well, maybe, hey, if we all sinned more, then God would be glorified more, right? Let's do, let's do eat more evils for, for the sake of more good. Now, Paul, Paul's having nothing, none of that. We'll see him take on a, a more Christianized version of this in chapter 6 that says, well, if we're saved by grace, well, we, should, we could keep sinning and then there'd be more grace, right? That would, be, that would be awesome. Like, no, no. Let's just make this really simple. Sin is bad. Sin is wrong. You didn't think you were going to get such deep theology today. Sin is bad. Sin is wrong. It always is. So real, real, it's never right to do wrong. There's another one. Take that, take that with you today, all right? If you understand that, all this back and forth in an imaginary debate may have seemed a little laborious. Let's, let's take a step back and try to take, take all this in from these first eight verses. It's, it's quite natural for people to object to the idea of God's judgment, that we will have to answer someday for what we've done, that there is a, somewhere out there, there's a perfect God who will one day administer perfect justice. But ironically, it's actually those who believe in God, who believe in judgment, that may come up with the most creative and convoluted reasons why it doesn't apply to them. Be careful. Be careful. I mean, that, that would be pathetic in itself if you found ways to sort of, you know, you found the loophole for you to get through God's law. And you're, I'm okay, I'm going to sin, but I'm still okay. Like, it would be pathetic in itself, but it becomes really offensive when we start accusing God of being wrong in his judgment, of being unfaithful to his word. How dare you judge me? But God is not the guilty one. We are. Now, I promise we're going to get to some relief before this is over, but we've got to press on. Not quite yet. This is the last part of the sermon. Objections overruled. All people are under sin, accountable to God, and unable to justify themselves. In, in verse 21, the beginning of our passage next week, Paul is going to pivot to explain how sinners can be saved. That's the good news that we really need. But that means the remainder of, this, of our text this morning, verses 9 to 20, is just the conclusion to what he began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed against all the unrighteousness of men. to show that all people will face judgment under God's wrath for sin. So, verses 9 and 10. What then? He comes back around to where he was at verse 1. What then? Are, are we Jews any better off? Remember, he said before, well, there's some value. There's some genuine good in being a Jew. I mean, you had the words of God, but are we better off when it comes to final judgment? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, which is to say, I, I've been making this point 
all through this last several, you know, the, the chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. I've, been, I've already made this point. So now he's, we're all under sin, not just, not just that we commit acts of sin, that we, we are under a, a, a power and under the guilt of sin, all of us together, all humankind, as it is written. And now he's going to uh, give us a lengthy quotation that supports that claim. Now, because you and I are uh, probably more familiar with Romans 3, uh, sadly, than we are the Old Testament, we, we know this passage, but we don't know the Old Testament where this comes from, we might miss the fact that this is not just one passage that Paul is quoting, um, that you, you couldn't just go to one page in the Old Testament and read this whole piece. There are five different psalms here, that, as well as snatches from Proverbs and Isaiah. This is a, this is a, a mosaic uh, that he's putting together, like when an artist selects bits of colored, you know, glass and stone and, and then puts them together to, to, to create a pattern or a picture or, or a montage in a movie that, that uh, cuts away from the typical scene to the, the music starts and then you just see little snippets and cuts from here and here and there to a, a bit where, you know, Rocky's hitting the punching bag and then you see him jumping rope and then you see him running the streets, then you see him going up the steps of the museum, boom, yeah, he's ready. Montage, right? That's what we have here. But this is not a, Paul, Paul's taking snatches of, of Scripture, stitching together phrases and lines from the words of God that had been entrusted to the Jews. And they would mentally be turning to these passages that they knew so well, except this mosaic is not beautiful. This montage shows degradation, not development. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Uh, you're like, anybody's, you're out there thinking, like, well, maybe not me, but not me. Surely not. not like, no, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is bringing this larger section to a powerful conclusion using the words of God himself. None is righteous, no not one. What would be particularly devastating for especially the, his, the Jewish portion of his audience is that these words in their original context in the Old Testament were written from the pen of Jews describing the Gentile wicked all around them. Paul is saying, no, these, these words apply to us too. As he said, are we Jews better? Paul's including himself here. Not just pointing fingers. It's time to stop pointing fingers. at They're the sinners. No, we, including we Jews, we're all in the same boat that is going down. None is righteous. No, not one. Not the Gentile given over to idolatry and immorality. Not the Jew that's boasting in the law and yet doing the very same sins. Not the Russian oligarch or the Somali pirate. Not the, not the quiet Buddhist monk or the sweet old lady at the little country church. No one is righteous. Not even one. And if you're squirming, I mean, he's, he's not done yet. Maybe you notice the, the, another thing going on in 
Paul's montage, all these features of the human body, verses 13 and 14, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, verses 15 to 17, the feet, the the paths they walk on, the way that they go, and verse 18, the cap, their eyes. Now, apparently, this is one way that Paul was kind of piecing this together in his mind. This, all the, all these, uh, this imagery sort of made it, well, composed itself in his mind. Of course, the leading of the Spirit as well. But think about this. With all, with all of our advances in communication today, 24-hour news cycles, instant messaging, mobile phones, we, we live in the age of the throat, the mouth, the lips, the tongue, People will say just about anything that comes to their mind. I mean, we're increasingly unfiltered. And as Jesus told us, though, what comes out of the mouth, you know where that comes from? It comes from the heart. If poison comes from my lips, what's in my heart? If my mouth is full of bitterness, what's in my heart? And notice the degree of this depravity. Their mouth is full of curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Hasn't it been horrifying to see the the path of ruin and misery that has been going through the Ukraine? The the forsaking of the way of peace as we watch this war unfold. That's not, sadly, that's not all that abnormal. It's all too normal in human history because this this is what humans are like. Uh, you may not know the name Reinhold Niebuhr. Like, wow, that's a that's quite a, mal- a, a German um, American who was a pretty well known theologian in the 20th century. He was uh, not an evangelical, but uh, he had some interesting things to say. Uh, his career spanned from World War One to the Vietnam War, so he saw quite a few things in his life. And he, he, I appreciate when he said this: the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Well, empirically verifiable? Well, th- th- think of it as you can, you can test this, you can prove this scientifically. So, like, Christians say, we believe in angels. Well, you can't prove that. Well, you, can't, you can't prove that scientifically. Well, we believe in Jesus' resurrection. Do, do you have a picture showing him coming out of the tomb? Like, we believe in sin. Okay, okay, we've got plenty of evidence for that, right? There's plenty of evidence in the world every day, in your home, in your heart. This is not something we, we're just making up. The evidence is all around us. It's within us. All this sin. And yet, Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no regard for God that would make them do what is right. There is no dread of having to face him one day in final judgment. And so they just go on. They carry on. Verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law speaking to the Jews, God's covenant people. They had the law. It's speaking to those who have the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. These words of Scripture quoted previously are the words of God talking to the people of God. They convict, they condemn, so that every mouth may be stopped. Now, you might read that and think, oh, the, yeah, the mouth, the mouth that was described in verse 14, the mouth that's full of curses and bitterness, that's the mouth that's going to be stopped. Well, yes, but that's actually not what he's, that's not the mouth being referred to most specifically. 
It's the mouth in verses 1 to 8 that cried, Objection! God can't do that. God won't judge me. That's the mouth that gets stopped. Objection overruled. You, you, can't, you can't get out of this on a technicality. You thought you were good enough at keeping the commandments or doing, you know, keeping them pretty good, well enough, that's, that's, that doing what God prescribes would be enough for you to pass final judgment. No, he says, if anything, the law shows you how far you fall short. How far you and I, how far we fall short. Now, I don't want to leave anyone here walking out of this room today feeling stuck under, to use Paul's phrase, under sin, under the weight of God's judgment, under the weight of the expectation of God's wrath, like, like some family huddled in an apartment in Ukraine just waiting for the explosion. That, that's, not, that's not where we're meant to stay. It, it, what, what this is seeking to do is to help you understand that it's, that, that day is coming. The day of reckoning is coming, that God is there. He will keep His Word. He will not just look the other way. He sees your sin, and we must answer for it. But we don't have to stay there. We have to come to grips with the reality. And the question is, how can we get through the judgment without being condemned utterly and eternally? Now, I could just say, well, come next week. Uh, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to talk much more next week. I'm gonna, just going to do this very briefly uh, this morning and also get us to communion. By not, not by reading ahead to Romans 3.21 and, and beyond, which is a, a really powerful passage we're going to get to next week. I want to actually read one verse from Romans 11. Romans 11.32 says this, and in that context, maybe some of you know, he is talking again, he revisits the issue of Jew and Gentile. I mean, if we're all uh, under sin and we're all saved by faith, next week, what, what, what's, again, what's the difference? Or how, here is a, a really key verse for us. Romans 11.32 says, For God has consigned all, all people, to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now, that doesn't mean all are just automatically saved. Like, all are guilty, and, and, and now all are saved. He's just saying, all, remember, remember the whole issue of, well, these people, these people are guilty, these people will face judgment, not these people, not us, not, not us, we're the good people. No, everyone. So, just as everyone will face, uh, are consigned to disobedience, he, he does that. He, he rules us all guilty so that he can, may have mercy on all who come to him through faith. All who come to him, and instead of, instead of sitting there and, and asking your, you know, elbowing your lawyer to cry objection, when, when it seems like they're, 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 they're heading in a way that, makes, that points to your guilt, instead throw yourself on the mercy of the judge. Don't, don't, don't try to resist the reality of your sin and guilt and judgment, the judgment of God. Throw yourself on the mercy of the judge. And the, here's the good news. We have an advocate. We have someone beside us who will say, Your Honor, I, 
we plead guilty, but we throw ourselves on the mercy of this court. And when Christ, when Jesus stands with you, stands for you, we're going to see this next week. He takes the wrath that you deserve, that you and I deserve. He takes, he, he takes as if our sin on himself so that he becomes under sin. Not guilty in himself, but taking on our guilt, taking on the death that we deserve to give us the life that we do not deserve. That's why we come to this moment again and again, week after week in the gospel, month after month as we remember the death of Jesus on our behalf. He didn't die to be an inspiration. To, he didn't die to, as, a, as a, a sign of, like, wouldn't it be nice if somebody just uh, died as a, as a tribute to the, the pain of this world? No, he died to take that sin on himself, to absorb the wrath that we deserved, and to thereby free us that we could go free in his name. So let's, I'm going to pray, then we'll do this together. Father, we are thanking you right now that though you are perfectly right to judge sin, to judge our sin, that's not the end of the story. I pray, I do pray that we would look at this mosaic of sin and see ourselves reflected in its, in its pattern in this picture. If we put together a montage of our sin, oh, how, how ugly. Far, far more harder to read than this passage was. And yet, you took it all through your Son on the cross. We thank you for your mercy. And we seek to give Jesus glory as we remember him now in his name. Amen.